Hello, I'm Tim McLaughlin, and this is a Maywa podcast. In this episode, we present part one of Ashok Chatterjee's lecture from Gandhi to Globalization, Craft and Human Development. The lecture was recorded live on October 21, 2009, as part of the Mewa Textile Symposium. Ashok Chatterjee presented his lecture from India via an internet link. Craft may seem timeless, but it is, in fact, tossed on a constantly changing sea of social, political, and economic currents. Few have been able to navigate these waters as skillfully as Asik Chatterjee, who, among his other achievements, has been the executive director of the National Institute of Design, India, and president for many years of the Crafts Council of India. Mahatma Gandhi dreamed of India's independence and used localized hand production as a weapon against colonial rule. Later, Gandhi's legacy helped shape craft development within national planning, but contemporary globalization dreams of market influence, often at the expense of independence. The shift between paradigms has had far-reaching effects for human development in all countries, especially in the craft sector. The lecture is introduced by Mewa founder and owner, Charlotte Kwan. Welcome. It's perhaps one of the proudest moments of my life to be able to introduce Ashik Chatterjee as a presenter in the Maiwa Textile Symposium. Ashik is one of the most eloquent voices for craft and artisans we have ever known. He is both an activist and has a great presence which commands attention. He has clarity that guides and gently corrects us. Be we makers, farmers, traders, he helps us find our own clarity and we rediscover why we do what we do. At this point in holding our fifth symposium, I deeply needed him to share his perspective on this symposium and I wanted the audience to be exposed to his ideas. He is direct and he is honest. I wanted him to give his opinion on the value of the symposium. I was prepared for one of possibly two answers. Yes, this has a great impact and is of importance to the survival of craft. Or, no, Charlotte, your energy could be better spent elsewhere. But it is with great sadness, frustration, and a building anger that I must tell you that he cannot be here in person. As many of you know, it is difficult for us to get Canadian visas for Indian artisans. We understand that there are many bureaucratic hoops and much paperwork involved in this process. We have persevered over the years and been successful in bringing weavers from Bengal, embroiderers from the Kutch Desert, block printers from Bagru and Kutch. We always begin this process in April in order to ensure a visa by October. We anticipate at least three rejections for the artisans. I have to bring you the binder that goes with each artisan's visa application that is prepared from this side. The contents, a letter from the Governor General, Michel Jean, supporting the symposium, a letter from the Minister of Culture, supporting the symposium, the Mayor of Vancouver, the Governor of Rajasthan, three years of tax records from Maiwa, letters from 
our bank, the museum, <laughs> our certificate of incorporation as a business, my passport and all my personal details, letters of invitation, paid tickets, air tickets and paid hotel reservations, speaker admittance forms, endless actually, uh, registrations with Interpol that have to go in in April to pass all the names so they can go in for reg uh, getting a visa, our printed brochure and three years past printed brochures, all the media, it goes on. In addition, they have to prepare proof that they have land, a wife, children, bank accounts. This is for the artisans and Ashik. We were very shocked that when we were told that Ashik Chatterjee, a man with impeccable credentials, a man for over 25 years was the head of India's NID, the National Institute for Design. He's been involved with institutional development at Shastri School of Design, Bangalore, Indus Valley School of Design and Architecture, Karachi, Royal School of Art, UK. He's been the director of the Craft Council of India and is currently honorary advisor. He holds a current US visa and a current UK visa was denied. The reasons given by the Canadian government are that Mr. Chatterjee has no business ties to Canada and they do not believe he will return. And Maiwa has not been considered a legitimate business. The denial is final and it's not open to appeal. We'd hoped to read those welcoming letters sent to us from the Governor General of Canada and other political representatives and dignitaries. How after all that we've been through this year, we find the refusal not both shocking and farcical. We're a bit ashamed and embarrassed to accord that honor to a representative of the Canadian government who asked us actually to read that first and foremost before any other announcements were made. The farce deepens when we read recent reports of the Canadian government's attempts to increase trade with India and Prime Minister Harper's pending visit of November of this year. We had gone through the application process for the two Jawaja artisans, one weaver and one leather worker. We knew this would be a challenge and we were always prepared. We've gone through three applications. Maiwa and the artisans met every question with an accepted answer and we met every requirement. But still, Jawaja artisan visas and Ashok's visa was denied. This lecture tonight is really in two parts. To really understand the full scope of what is happening, you must come back on the 27th to the Jawaja lecture. It was arranged that Ashik would be here to speak tonight with you and Jawaja would be here present. And then Jawaja would be speaking their own story on Ashik was going to set the tone of craft in the world. There's no better person to explain to you what's going on with craft in the world. And Jawaja artisans were to be there to tell their own story on the 27th. And here's what Jawaja artisans prepared for their workshop, which also was canceled, and their lecture. They've worked now for over a year preparing the workshop and their presentation. Next Tuesday, when you come, 
you'll be privileged to witness the multimedia presentation that they had hoped to present while they sat among us. This was created in collaboration with a team of NID students. In addition, they had prepared a lecture and samples of their work. For the Jawaja group, this was literally the opportunity of a lifetime. The first time ever that they are able to tell an international audience their story themselves. We have organized a video conference solution to these problems. We've had a fantastic symposium so far. We are mustering our strengths to overcome these difficulties. And I'm personally making a plea to you. We've all enjoyed this program so far. We have learned, we've been moved, we've been changed, we've been inspired. Now I'm asking you to come and support the Jawajan Artisans next Tuesday. Tell your friends, tell your family, advocate. I assure you, you will not be disappointed. Both tonight and the 27th will be very special evenings. It is what this symposium is all about. They must be present. There is no need for this symposium if we cannot have the artisans present. These are the issues of human development. We're not speaking in abstract here. And so now I'm going to turn the floor over to you and I present Ashik Chatterjee. Thank you very much. Thank you for that very generous introduction. I think it was Helen Keller, was it not, who said that it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. And in a way, I think that's what you're doing up there in Vancouver. So, good evening. Here in India, my city of Ahmedabad, we've just stepped into a new year. This is the season of Diwali, the festival of lights, the festival of hope and of peace. And this is the season where we all believe and hope that truth triumphs over ignorance. And how do we do that? with one of the most ancient craft products that this subcontinent has. And I'm going to wish you a happy Diwali and a new year of peace and health by lighting a lamp as we hope. I hope I've had to make sure that I don't, uh, can you see it? Okay. I don't foul up any of the fire regulations in the studio. But I want you to just hang on to that. Of course, we can't take the camera close to the, but I'll try and bring it closer to you in the sense that this lamp, like this, what we call a lota, a pot, is one of the classic forms that have come down through at least 6,000 years without change. And if crafts can persist for these thousands of years without any break, then we have to take the kind of problems we've had in our stride, wish, wish those visa officers a happy and peaceful New Year as well, and hope, that, and hope that the light will dawn upon them. Let me start by giving you a sense of the background to where we are in India today in crafts. What is special about India is, of course, this unbroken tradition, and I stress that word unbroken, of at least 6,000 years. 
But is it going to continue into this next millennium or into the next several thousand years? Who knows? That's the question that we're posing because it's not just an India challenge, as you and the hall this evening understand. It's for all of us. And why? Hopefully, these two occasions, my time with you here this evening, and your time with the, my colleagues from Jawaja on the 27th, may provide some clues. These clues come from India, perhaps, because India was the first developing country to incorporate crafts into central planning when we became free 60 years ago. Also, crafts and hand production was absolutely central to India's struggle for freedom. And that is going to be part of what I will share with you. But to give you the context of why hand production and crafts was central to our struggle for freedom from colonial domination and central to the thrust of a free, democratic, and not yet, but hopefully one day, a just and equitable society, crafts was important. And yet today, crafts are threatened. The sector is in crisis. The Jawaja are in debt to the extent of what may appear a small amount of money, 16,000 US dollars, but big enough to threaten 30 years of effort of a group of people who, 30 years ago, ate once in two days, were not allowed to drink from the village well, and yet who, through perseverance, courage, the power of crafts, and the power of networking with other institutions, with individuals and institutions that represent modernity, have come a long way each twice in one day, have homes now, not hovels, have access to the village well, have a measure of dignity in a, in a still highly oppressive society. That's their story and that's their hope. But that, that's for another day, as Charlotte has just told you. Let me start by giving you a, a quick hop, skip and jump through several thousand years of Indian history to provide a context for our topic of Gandhi and globalization and what that has to do with crafts. The first slide, which you will see, is a official map of handicrafts in India. You're not going to be able to see the details, don't worry about that, but hopefully you will see a map in front of you. Can you see it now? which is full of the dots and, uh, and squiggles, which shows you that from Kashmir in the far north to Kerala in the south, Arunachal in the east, and Gujarat in the west, there are many, many centers of craft activity. This is a country of one billion and more people. The biggest democracy in the world a growing economic power, 18 official languages, 1,600 minor languages and dialects. And let me tell you that in not a single one of these 1,618 tongues 
Is there a word for handicraft? So that tells you exactly what kind of a challenge we are up against, because in the context of the Indian psyche, there is no difference between craft, art, engineering, architecture, dance, music, or worship. They all come together in a single word called Kala. But the British introduced English and they introduced the concept of craft. And now let me tell you how we're using it. The first uh, evidence of Indian craft is the next slide, which is a slide from the Indus Valley civilization that goes back to 3,000 years before Christ. It's the central figure of we don't know who, because this is the last civilization, a king perhaps, a ruler, a nobleman, but look at the exquisite detail of textile on his shoulder. After this civilization of the Indus Valley, that's on the western side of India and all of Pakistan, Indian history goes silent for almost 1,500 years. We don't know what was going on then. But it re-emerges in the Buddhist period, symbolized by the next slide, which is a medallion from central India, from the great stupa at Sanchi. If you look at the detail on this medallion, you will see a cart, toys, garments, and vessels, products and systems that exist right here today, right around the corner from where I am speaking. In the same period, we have the most incredible documentation of Indian craft in what you will see in the next two slides, which are from the caves of Ajanta. This famous bodhisattva from the Ajanta caves indicates the ex exquisite command over jewelry, textiles, and ornamentation. The next slide has a pot form familiar right to this day. And what is interesting and why I've selected this is that in this slide, you also see the structural detail of wooden buildings, not a single one of whom still exist. They've been eaten away by worms or whatever, but only Ajanta tells us of the great craft skills that existed in that time. The next slide is a huge leap into the courts of the Mughal kings in the 16th to the 18th centuries, when Islamic power was at its height in North India. And finally, the greatest uh, craft product of all times, perhaps the Taj Mahal. But in this slide, you see the exquisite command over detail of these great uh, craftsmen of North India at that time. Carpets, furniture, ornaments, uh, textiles, of course, weapons. And this, in the next slide, you see the lavish use of gold, silver, and jewelry in this Mughal uh, <clears throat> weapon. Meanwhile, down south, the Hindu kingdoms also had developed an extraordinary ex uh, range of craft idioms, as you will see in the next slide. The next slide represents 
a uh, fresco from Andhra Pradesh in South India. Take a look at their uh, the clothing, the bold design of the ornaments and clothing. And in the next slide, you see the towering temples, which are, in, in a sense, symbolic of the arts and crafts of South India. Here we are in the 9th and 10th centuries. And perhaps the most greatest uh, craft products of that era, apart from the temples, are the great bronzes of South India. The next slide shows you perhaps the most famous uh, of the Chola bronzes, the Chola kings. They were the emperors at the time when this great image was created, which is known throughout the world. I want to pause for a minute here. Because who made these images? They were made by artisans. But here they took on a role which, in a sense, they still have. Not just makers, but philosophers, spiritual guides. The products they made had a life of their own, a sanctity of their own. This great image of the dancing Shiva tells us about creation and destruction, about life itself, about movement, about the atom as the beginning and the end of all creation. The dancing Shiva, just like the little lamp behind me, are sacred objects. That sanctity is something we need to hold in mind as we go through this exploration, because ultimately, that sanctity of purpose is what is challenged today and what we are struggling to sustain and to preserve. Another big leap into through history, and we are now in the British period, which you see in the next slide. Here is a lady. Her name is Lady Impe, uh, making sure that the empire stays in correct order. She is seated in her home in Calcutta, and the natives surround her, artisans, servants, everybody doing as they're told, as should happen in an imperial setting. But even here you will see contemporary products like that magnificent carpet laid out at Lady Impey's feet. And in the background, furniture, including a four-poster bed and other artifacts made by Indian artisans who are now turning their skills to another set of products and needs and interacting with Western design. The interesting thing about the British period is that on the one hand, the British decided to suppress India's craft production. History tells us that, for example, the weavers of Dhaka, who made the finest muslin in the world, had their thumbs cut off so they could no longer weave and the Indian market would be open to the mills of Lancaster. And yet, as the next slide will show you, the British, despite this mischief, also undertook the documentation of Indian artisans and their crafts and have left us with some of the most important records of the tools, the work, the products, and the living conditions of artisans 
in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. This was the background to the role of crafts in the freedom movement. The next slide indicates that in addition to serving the British, the artisans moved into the service of the palace, the Maharajas. The Maharajas became the most important patrons of artisans as the temples and traditional societies began to crumble and lose their influence and power during colonial rule. So the, the Indian courts of the Maharajas reflected not only traditional products, but as you see here, the influence of European and British design, as you see in this table, created in India, but by Indian artisans mimicking the crafts of Victorian Britain. This then was the context, the backdrop, in which crafts moved in to the minds and hearts of those who began to prepare the struggle for India's freedom from colonial rule. The next slide shows you two of the most important characters in this whole process. On the left, Rabindranath Tagore, the great poet, and on the right, Mahatma Gandhi. The important thing to remember here is that for them, the struggle for freedom was not just about asking the British to get out. It was much more than that. It was a quest for genuine freedom. What does that genuine freedom mean? Were we in India to have the British exit and then replace them with other forms of oppression? How could India, how could Indians be genuinely free? And what did that mean? For both these individuals, it was a concept of self-reliance, a strong sense of identity, of knowing who we are and who we want to be in a rapidly changing world. To explore this, Tagore opened Vishwabharati, his world's university in Shantiniketan in Bengal. And Gandhiji, Mahatma Gandhi, was hard at work in his ashram in the city of Ahmedabad from where I speak, trying to work out his strategy for freedom. Both these great minds agreed that central to this struggle for freedom must be an understanding and a respect for the human hand and for hand production that could be a strategy for self-reliance and for a, uh, for agitation against colonial rule. The next slide is about Gandhi's own effort to understand hand production. He learned the crafts of India and then focused on one particular strategy, which was perhaps the greatest design story of the 20th century and certainly the greatest craft story India has ever produced. And that was his decision, as the next slide will show you, to move the
struggle for freedom into a movement for stemming. Gandhiji decided that the symbol against British rule must be that we as Indians spin our own cotton, create our own textile, and wear handspun and boycott the textiles that were being exported to India from Britain. This, he said, would be the way we would understand that unless we look after our own needs in our own way and cut down our own demands, we would never be free in spirit. And therefore, hand production and particularly hand-woven cloth, which was known as khadi, became the central strategy for India's struggle for freedom. Gandhi was himself a great designer. The next slide shows you a portable spinning wheel, which he designed sitting here in Ahmedabad, so that he could take it with him around the country when he was traveling, and perhaps even more important, carry it with him to jail, where he was constantly being taken by the British rulers. He insisted that everybody who participated in the freedom struggle should learn to spin, create yarn, which could then be woven into cloth, which they would wear as the livery of freedom. The next slide shows you his attempt to train the freedom workers in spinning. And in the slide at the bottom, you see on his right the, form, the future Prime Minister of Free India, Jawaharlal Nehru, learning to spin under Gandhiji's tutorship. So the spinning wheel then became the central element, both as symbol and as strategy, in the struggle against British rule. Not just against British rule, but in the struggle for true freedom. The next slide will show you the flag under which the freedom struggle was, was conducted. And you will see the central symbol of the spinning wheel, underlining once again the centrality of hand production to the entire struggle for India's freedom. That struggle itself is a great story of nonviolence, of sacrifice, and of achievement, which ended with Gandhi's martyrdom in 1948 at the hand of an assassin. This was the background that Indian artisans and Indian citizens inherited in 1947 when we became free. At the time of freedom, the first government that took on planning brought crafts into the center of the plans that were being laid for economic development. A departments of crafts were established in New Delhi as well as in the state capital. State capitals, uh, craft stores were opened throughout the country by the government. A range of schemes was introduced to assist and promote artisans. Awards for excellence were created. Uh, there was a strong preoccupation 
with the export of Indian crafts as a way to earn scarce foreign exchange. And in time, crafts became central to India's cultural diplomacy. The next slide shows you, the next couple of slides show you, the artisans who carry this inheritance. This slide is from Lakshadweep in the Arabian Sea, where the great craft of making hand-sewn boats continues. These, incidentally, are the artisans who created the Kontiki craft, which I'm sure you've heard about. The next slide is from Rajasthan, and that shows you a traditional artisan. All these artisans, as the next slide indicates, are now involved in creating products for new markets. The next slide will show you some of these products for the new markets. This, for example, is stone uh, tableware. The next slide is a product created by the designer Marco Bellini of Italy and an artisan Kesaria Ram of Uttar Pradesh. It's a stone bench which took six months to create and is today in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. I use this. It's the cover of a marvelous documentation in two volumes of the Stone Crafts of India done by a team of alumni from the National Institute of Design for the Crafts Council of India. But the great thing about these product, this product and about what you will see in the next slide is interaction that now is taking place between artisans and a generation of designers, some from overseas like Marco Bellini, but a whole generation of Indian designers working with crafts, working with artisans, creating a new team that can cope with the challenges of a new market. This interaction between designers and artisans is part of the story that you will hear from my colleagues, the artisans of Jawaja, when they are with you on the 27th. But the point that I want to make here is that with the introduction of the designer, we begin to understand the importance of the marketing process. Myla and Vancouver is symbolic of this as well. The arts and crafts of the, my country and of countries all over Asia, Africa, and Latin America, we cannot survive, we cannot have a future if we are not able to respond effectively to the challenge of marketing. One of the problems we've had in India over the years is that so many of us, including NGOs, craft activists, people in, in various ministries and uh, in places of decision-making, we go through this great ritual of saying how wonderful our crafts are, but when it comes to actually selling, we don't really know what we're doing much of the time. And that's part of the challenge that we will be exploring. But the final slide indicates that irrespective 
of what we do with contemporary products, the ultimate benchmark for excellence is tradition. As in this, here are the new products that, that, uh, that can we just go back one slide? This scattering of pamphlets and leaflets from various marketing activities indicate the new thrust towards sophisticated marketing that is taking place in, in India. This is where designers and artists are interacting. This is where new marketing channels are opening up, both in India and overseas. Maiwa is one of them. This is where the future has to be made. Always creating for consumers who have new needs, which in many ways are sharply in contrast with tradition. And yet, as the final slide shows, the benchmark is always tradition. And I have used a detail from the Taj to indicate that, because no matter what we do in terms of responding to contemporary needs, the benchmark for excellence is always tradition. Well, that's the end of the picture show. You've been listening to part one of Ashok Chatterjee's lecture, From Gandhi to Globalization, Craft and Human Development. Part two will present the conclusion of Ashok's lecture and contain the question and answer section. For more information on our podcasts, please visit www.maywall.com. Also, please follow the link to our blog for updates on the visa situation and posts about the Jawadra Cooperative. I'm Tim McLaughlin. Thank you for listening.